Chapter Sixty of Jenny Gerhardt by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The drift of events for a period of five years carried Lester and Jenny still farther apart. They settled naturally into their respective spheres, without the renewal of the old-time relationship which their several meetings at the Tremont at first seemed to foreshadow. Lester was in the thick of social and commercial affairs. He walked in paths to which Jenny's retiring soul had never aspired. Jenny's own existence was quiet and uneventful. There was a simple cottage in a very respectable but not showy neighborhood near Jackson Park on the south side, where she lived in retirement with a little foster child, a chestnut-haired girl taken from the western homes for the friendless as her sole companion. Here she was known as Mrs. J. G. Stover, for she had deemed it best to abandon the name of Kane. Mr. and Mrs. Lester Kane, when resident in Chicago, were the occupants of a handsome mansion on the Lakeshore Drive, where parties, balls, receptions, dinners were given in rapid and at times almost pyrotechnic succession. Lester, however, had become in his way a lover of a peaceful and well-entertained existence. He had cut from his list of acquaintances and associates a number of people who had been a little doubtful or overfamiliar or indifferent or talkative during a certain period which to him was a memory merely. He was a director, and in several cases the chairman of a board of directors in nine of the most important financial and commercial organizations of the West, the United Traction Company of Cincinnati, the Western Crucible Company, the United Carriage Company, the Second National Bank of Chicago, the First National Bank of Cincinnati, and several others of equal importance. He was never a personal factor in the affairs of the United Carriage Company, preferring to be represented by counsel. Mr. Dwight L. Watson, but he took a keen interest in its affairs. He had not seen his brother Robert to speak to him in seven years. He had not seen Imogene, who lived in Chicago, in three. Louise, Amy, their husbands, and some of their closest acquaintances were practically strangers. The firm of Knight, Keatley, and O'Brien had nothing whatever to do with his affairs. The truth was that Lester, in addition to becoming a little plagmatic, was becoming decidedly critical in his outlook on life. He could not make out what it was all about. In distant ages a queer thing had come to pass. There had started on its way in the form of evolution a minute cellular organism, which had apparently reproduced itself by division, and had early learned to combine itself with others to organize itself into bodies, strange forms of fish, animals, and birds, and had finally learned to organize itself into man. Man on his part, composed as he was of self-organizing cells, was pushing himself forward into comfort and different aspects of existence by means of union and organization with other men. Why? Heaven only knew. Here he was endowed with a peculiar brain and a certain amount of talent, and he had inherited 
a certain amount of wealth which he now scarcely believed he deserved. Only luck had favored him. But he could not see that anyone else might be said to deserve this wealth any more than himself. Seeing that his use of it was as conservative and constructive and practical as the next ones. He might have been born poor, in which case he would have been as well satisfied as the next one, not more so. Why should he complain? Why worry? Why speculate? The world was going steadily forward of its own volition, whether he would or not. Truly it was. And was there any need for him to disturb himself about it? There was not. He fancied at times that it might as well have never been started at all. The one divine far-off event of the poet did not appeal to him as having any basis in fact. Mrs. Lester Kane was of very much the same opinion. Jenny, living on the south side with her adopted child, Rose Perpetua, was of no fixed conclusions as to the meaning of life. She had not the incisive reasoning capacity of either Mr. or Mrs. Lester Kane. She had seen a great deal, suffered a great deal, and had read in some desultory way. Her mind had never grasped the nature and character of specialized knowledge. History, physics, chemistry, botany, geology, and sociology were not fixed departments in her brain, as they were in Lester and Letty's. Instead, there was the feeling that the world moved in some strange, unstable way. Apparently, no one knew clearly what it was all about. People were born and died. Some believed that the world had been made six thousand years before. Some, that it was millions of years old. Was it all blind chance, or was there some guiding intelligence, a god? Almost in spite of herself, she felt that there must be something, a higher power which produced all the beautiful things. The flowers, the stars, the trees, the grass. Nature was so beautiful. If at times life seemed cruel, yet this beauty still persisted. The thought comforted her. She fed upon it in her hours of secret loneliness. It has been said that Jenny was naturally of an industrious turn. She liked to be employed, though she thought constantly as she worked. She was of matronly proportions in these days, not disagreeably large, but full-bodied, shapely, and smooth-faced in spite of her cares. Her eyes were gray and appealing. Her hair was still of a rich brown, but there were traces of gray in it. Her neighbors spoke of her as sweet-tempered, kindly, and hospitable. They knew nothing of her history, except that she had formerly resided in Sandwood, and before that in Cleveland. She was very reticent as to her past. Jenny had fancied, because of her natural aptitude for taking care of sick people, that she might get to be a trained nurse. But she was obliged to abandon that idea, for she found that only young people were wanted. She also thought that some charitable organization might employ her, but she did not understand the new theory of charity, which was then coming into general acceptance and practice, namely, only to help others to help themselves. She believed in giving, and was not inclined to look too closely into the credentials of those who asked for help. Consequently, 
her timid inquiry at one relief agency after another met with indifference, if not unqualified rebuke. She finally decided to adopt another child for Rose Perpetua's sake. She succeeded in securing a boy, four years old, who was known as Henry, Henry Stover. Her support was assured, for her income was paid to her through a trust company. She had no desire for speculation or for the devious ways of trade. The care of flowers, the nature of children, the ordering of a home were more in her province. One of the interesting things in connection with this separation, once it had been firmly established, related to Robert and Lester. For these two, since the reading of the will a number of years before, had never met. Robert had thought of his brother often. He had followed his success since he had left Jenny with interest. He read of his marriage to Mrs. Gerald with pleasure. He had always considered her an ideal companion for his brother. He knew by many signs and tokens that his brother, since the unfortunate termination of their father's attitude and his own peculiar movements to gain control of the Kane Company, did not like him. Still, they had never been so far apart mentally, certainly not in commercial judgment. Lester was prosperous now. He could afford to be generous. He could afford to make up. And after all, he had done his best to aid his brother to come to his senses and with the best intentions. There were mutual interests they could share financially if they were friends. He wondered from time to time if Lester would not be friendly with him. Time passed, and then once, when he was in Chicago, he made the friends with whom he was driving purposely turn into the North Shore in order to see the splendid mansion which the Canes occupied. He knew its location from hearsay and description. When he saw it, a touch of the old Kane home atmosphere came back to him. Lester, in revising the property after purchase, had had a conservatory built on one side, not unlike the one at home in Cincinnati. The same night he sat down and wrote Lester, asking if he would not like to dine with him at the Union Club. He was in town only for a day or two, and he would like to see him again. There was some feeling, he knew, but there was a proposition that he would like to talk to him about. Would he come, say, on Thursday? On receipt of this letter, Lester frowned and fell into a brown study. He had never really been healed of the wound that his father had given him. He had never been comfortable in his mind since Robert had deserted him so summarily. He realized now that the stakes his brother had been playing for were big. But after all, he had been his brother, and if he had been in Robert's place at the time, he would not have done as he had done. At least he hoped not. Now Robert wanted to see him. He thought once of not answering at all. Then he thought he would write and say no. But a curious desire to see Robert again, to hear what he had to say, to listen to the proposition he had to offer, came over him. He decided to write yes. It could do no harm. He knew it could do no good. They might agree to let bygones be bygones, but the damage had been done. Could a broken bowl be mended and called whole? It might be called whole, but what of it? Was it not broken and mended? He wrote and intimated that he would come. 
On the Thursday in question, Robert called up from the auditorium to remind him of the engagement. Lester listened curiously to the sound of his voice. All right, he said. I'll be with you. At noon he went downtown, and there, within the exclusive precincts of the Union Club, the two brothers met and looked at each other again. Robert was thinner than when Lester had seen him last, and a little grayer. His eyes were bright and steely, but there were crow's feet on either side. His manner was quick, keen, dynamic. Lester was noticeably of another type, solid, brusque, and indifferent. Men spoke of Lester these days as a little hard. Robert's keen blue eyes did not disturb him in the least, did not affect him in any way. He saw his brother just as he was, for he had the larger philosophic and interpretive insight. But Robert could not place Lester exactly. He could not phantom just what had happened to him in these years. Lester was stouter, not gray, for some reason, but sandy and ruddy, looking like a man who was fairly well satisfied to take life as he found it. Lester looked at his brother with a keen, steady eye. The latter shifted a little, for he was restless. He could see that there was no loss of the mental force and courage which had always been predominant characteristics in Lester's makeup. "'I thought I'd like to see you again, Lester,' Robert remarked, after they had clasped hands in the customary grip. "'It's been a long time now. Nearly eight years, hasn't it?' "'About that,' replied Lester. "'How are things with you?' "'Oh, about the same. You've been fairly well, I see.' "'Never sick,' said Lester. "'A little cold now and then. I don't often go to bed with anything.' How's your wife? Oh, Margaret's fine. And the children? We don't see much of Ralph and Bernice since they married. But the others are around, more or less. I suppose your wife is all right, he said hesitatingly. It was difficult ground for Robert. Lester eyed him without a change of expression. Yes, he replied. She enjoys pretty fair health. She's quite well at present. They drifted mentally for a few moments, while Lester inquired after the business and Amy, Louise, and Imogene. He admitted frankly that he neither saw nor heard from them nowadays. Robert told him what he could. "'The thing that I was thinking of in connection with you, Lester,' said Robert, finally, "'is this matter of the Western Crucible Steel Company. You haven't been sitting there as a director in person, I noticed.' But your attorney, Watson, has been acting for you. Clever man, that. The management isn't right. We all know that. We need a practical steel man at the head of it, if the thing is ever going to pay properly. I have voted my stock with yours right along, because the propositions made by Watson have been right. He agrees with me that things ought to be changed. Now I have a chance to buy seventy shares held by Rossiter's widow. That, with yours and mine, would give us control of the company. I would like to have you take them, though it doesn't make a bit of difference so long as it's in the family. You can put anyone you please in for president, and we'll make the thing come out right. Lester smiled. It was a pleasant proposition. Watson had told him that Robert's interests were cooperating with him. 
Lester had long suspected that Robert would like to make up. This was the olive branch, the control of a property worth in the neighborhood of a million and a half. "'That's very nice of you,' said Lester solemnly. "'It's a rather liberal thing to do. What makes you want to do it now?' "'Well, to tell you the honest truth, Lester,' replied Robert, "'I never did feel right about that will business. I never did feel right about that secretary treasurership and some other things that have happened. I don't want to rake up the past. You smile at that, but I can't help telling you how I feel. I've been pretty ambitious in the past. I was pretty ambitious just about the time father died to get this united carriage scheme underway, and I was afraid you might not like it. I have thought since that I ought not to have done it, but I did. I suppose you're not anxious to hear any more about that old affair. This other thing, though, might be handed out as a sort of compensation, put in Lester quietly. Not exactly that, Lester, though it may have something of that in it. I know these things don't matter very much to you. I know that the time to do things was years ago, not now. I thought sincerely that you might be interested in this proposition. It might lead to other things. Frankly, I thought it might patch up matters between us. We're brothers, after all. Yes, said Lester, we're brothers. He was thinking, as he said this, of the irony of the situation. How much had this sense of brotherhood been worth in the past? Robert had practically forced him into his present relationship, and while Jenny had been really the only one to suffer, he could not help feeling angry. It was true that Robert had not cut him out of his one-fourth of his father's estate, but certainly he had not helped him to get it. And now Robert was thinking that this offer of his might mend things. It hurt him, Lester, a little. It irritated him. Life was strange. "'I can't see it, Robert,' he said finally and determinedly. "'I can appreciate the motive that prompts you to make this offer, but I can't see the wisdom of my taking it. Your opportunity is your opportunity. I don't want it. We can make all the changes you suggest if you take the stock. I'm rich enough anyhow. Bygones are bygones. I'm perfectly willing to talk with you from time to time. That's all you want. This other thing is simply a sop with which to plaster an old wound. You want my friendship, and so far as I'm concerned you have that, I don't hold any grudge against you. I won't. Robert looked at him fixedly. He half smiled. He admired Lester, in spite of all that had been done to him, in spite of all that Lester was doing to him now. I don't know, but you're right, Lester, he admitted finally. I didn't make this offer in any petty spirit, though. I wanted to patch up this matter of feeling between us. I won't say anything more about it. You're not coming down to Cincinnati soon, are you? I don't expect to, replied Lester. If you do, I'd like to have you come and stay with us. Bring your wife. We could talk over old times. Lester smiled, an enigmatic smile. I'll be glad to, he said without emotion. But he remembered that in the days of Jenny it was different. They would never have receded from their position regarding her. Well, he thought, Perhaps I can't blame them. Let it go. They talked on about other things. 
Finally, Lester remembered an appointment. I'll have to leave you soon, he said, looking at his watch. I ought to go, too, said Robert. They rose. Well, anyhow, he added, as they walked toward the cloakroom, we won't be absolute strangers in the future, will we? Certainly not, said Lester. I'll see you from time to time. They shook hands and separated amicably. There was a sense of unsatisfied obligation and some remorse in Robert's mind as he saw his brother walking briskly away. Lester was an able man. Why was it that there was so much feeling between them? Had been even before Jenny had appeared. Then he remembered his old thoughts about snaky deeds. That was what his brother lacked, and that only. He was not crafty, not darkly cruel, hence what a world, he thought. On his part, Lester went away, feeling a slight sense of opposition, too, but also of sympathy for his brother. He was not so terribly bad, not different from other men. Why criticize? What would he have done if he had been in Robert's place? Robert was getting along. So was he. He could see now how it all came about, why he had been made the victim, why his brother had been made the keeper of the great fortune. It's the way the world runs, he thought. What difference does it make? I have enough to live on. Why not let it go at that? End of chapter 60